Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Providence Community Podcast. My name is Chris Oswald, Senior Pastor at Providence Community Church. Today is Tuesday, September 26, 2023, and we are going to discuss a passage we looked at this Sunday, this past Sunday. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. So let's get into it. The text says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I was asked last night at a men's meeting, we had an outlaw apologetics last week, or last night, and uh, I was asked if I would make more clear something I said in the sermon on Sunday, that there were really kind of two general perspectives that you could take on verse 15. So before, I'm going to mostly talk today about verse 12, but before we get there, let me let me do a little housekeeping and clear this up. So uh, verse 15 again says, yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with, uh, with self-control. Now, the one that I, I feel like I was explicit with is, well, there's two things I think I did communicate decently enough. Uh, the first is, is that the most obvious interpretation here is the most heretical. Um, no one is arguing that there are two paths for salvation, one for men, which is Christ, and the other for women, which is childbearing. And no one is arguing that uh, it's it's Jesus plus something else. That's not what at, that's not what Paul believes. That's not what the book of First Timothy teaches. So, uh, so w- the most obvious take would be the most heretical in this particular case. So this is a rare case. We don't typically find texts like this where the most obvious is the uh, is is the most erroneous. The most obvious might not always be right, but it usually is. And even if it's not right, it's usually not super, super off. Well, here we would have that. So now we're forced to sort of look at this verse and try to make some sense of it that doesn't sort of uh, delegitimize the entire rest of the scriptures and the rest of the scriptures clear teaching on the nature of salvation and so on and so forth. And the way you would do that, uh, because you have to, is uh, you would essentially either take the word saved to mean something different than what would obviously come to mind, or you would take the word childbearing to mean something differently than what would obviously come to mind. And um, and the proposal that I put forward as my my first preference would be that uh, the word saved here is is really not talking about individual salvation, but essentially the saving of a woman's role to play in the kingdom of God, or the saving of a woman's uh, role to play in influencing the world, and so on and so forth. And so, I took, I, I had to do, uh, you know, some modif- not modification, but I had to take the word "save" to mean something that it wouldn't just normally mean here. And as I said in the sermon, you know, I, I think I'm comfortable with that. The word "saved" can mean different things. It means to redeem, rescue, so on and so forth. So that was my primary take that that essentially what we have is verse 12 saying you can't do this. 
um, this is not your role. And in verse 15, this is your role. And one of the big things I, I got super passionate about in the message was that <laughs> there's no um, there's no math that works that suggests that childbearing is less significant than anything else. Like it, it, it's a hyper significant task. Okay, so that's interpretation one. Last night at Outlaw Apologetics, I was asked, "What about the other one?" And uh, I said, uh, "You know, I'd mentioned it, but I just didn't signal that it was the other option." So the other option would be to take the word childbearing and make that the more figurative word. So we were going to use, in this interpretation, we would use saved as it's generally thought to be, uh, talking about salvation, so on and so forth. And then childbearing would have more of a figurative, in this case, I would say literary sense sense to it. And here it would just be a reference to God's promise, well, actually God's prediction for the serpent and promise to Eve, that she will be the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Messiah, the one who would crush the serpent's head. And that not only would the Messiah crush the serpent's head, but then he would continue to raise up sons and daughters who themselves would overcome the enemy with the word and the blood and the word, the blood and the word of their testimony. Uh, so, so that would be the other interpretation. You would just be taking the word childbearing and making it more literary and explicit reference to God's consolation of Eve, God's consolation of Eve post-fall, and that would work too. And so those are your two interpretations. I, I, I leaned into motherhood heavily because I think for us, first of all, that would be my, my slight favorite in terms of what I think the text is actually doing, but also because I think for us, I am just so jealous and concerned that young women are not deceived into seeing motherhood as a less than thing in these crucial years when you kind of make some choices early on, and those choices are really hard to just back out of really quickly. And so you kind of make some choices when you're 20 or 18, and then you wake up when you're 30 <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a, I, I've always had this concern for 20 somethings in that respect, because it's just such an influential period of time. So uh, that's why I taught the way that I, I taught it. And, uh, and so there you go. That's the, uh, the answer to, to the uh, question last night of outlaw apologetics. All right. Now I really want to get into verse 12 though. Um, and I, I want to get into this and be serious and diligent about it. And I'm mindful that you're going to just be listening to this. And um, so this is going to be a bit of a stretch. I mean, you're going to have your your brain, you know, you're going to need to hold up different options in your head at the same time and so on and so forth. But that's a muscle and it's a really good muscle to, to learn to use. And so uh, hopefully you'll, you'll be patient with me and I will be skillful and careful to do as good a job as I can do. And you'll do as good a job as you can do as a listener and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Okay, so let's talk about verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. First of all, I'll put in the show notes, uh, James White does a video on this, and he it's about an hour long, and he goes through the Greek, and he actually, you know, James will pull his his Logos software. It's not Logos. I don't know what he uses. But Accordance, probably. He'll pull this up and... Uh, on the screen so you can see his work in the Greek and so on and so forth. So that's what you'd want to do if you if you have any more questions after this podcast. And uh, I'll 
I'll put those, the link to that video in the show notes. So what does this mean? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, for the most part, there really has never been any question about the meaning. Kind of pretty clear. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. James gets into the question of the word for authority there. It's a novel word. Uh, and uh, it only appears one time in the in the scriptures, and so there's some controversy about that word. But generally speaking, I'm going to stick to the assumption that when most people read this, they would see that Paul is prohibiting women from what I'm going to summarize as preaching, which is essentially to exercise um, a, a word ministry role with authority over men. And, uh, and so now we just need to say, okay, everybody agrees what that means, but now, now why the division? Well, basically, uh, I would summarize the division on this between a category of people who think that that prohibition was limited to a particular time, uh, to a particular culture, maybe even to a particular church, and those like me who would say that that prohibition was unlimited. There were no limits to it. It just is what it is. As Paul said it here, so it is true. As, as Paul said it uh, in the first century to the church in Ephesus through Timothy, so it is true in this day in 2023. So there's a limited perspective and an unlimited perspective. One group sees this as a limited prohibition contingent on things that would eventually expire and then this prohibition is lifted and women are now capable of being in the ministry today uh, because that prohibition was lifted at some point in the, in the past. Um, or there's an unlimited perspective, which is the one I prescribe to, that would say, no, no, this is just, this is just the word of God and it, it's just as much for us as it was for them. Now, I... Uh, I, when I, when I, uh, I'm sure I'm capable of sinfully strawmanning and um, and so on and so forth. But I, I hope that I don't do that. I, I really made an effort not to strawman the position that I disagree with here. In fact, I, I really want to do my best to present it uh, as they would present it themselves. Obviously, though, of course, <laughs> at the end of my presentation of their perspective, I'm going to say, yeah, this is why I don't think that's true. But but I have gone to some great care not to strawman this. Here's, here's why I think this conversation matters. And I think why I have this conversation in a certain way matters. First of all, not to freak everybody out, but, you know, there is the issue of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it, that's just a very, I think it's a very dangerous thing to label something that is of the Holy Spirit as evil. And... It seems to me that that either side could go there. Um, oppression is evil, and so if there's some if there's some person, um, I feel like Beth Moore has gotten close to doing this before. Um, but if there's some person who is suggesting that a prohibition is that is of God is actually of the devil. Um, that would be that'd be pretty dangerous waters, given what Jesus says in Mark three twenty eight through twenty nine. All sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. 
So I just, I feel like I have to tread carefully here. I would not want to accuse someone who is, first of all, I would, want to, I would not want to, if the Lord is really in women preaching, and I, and I say that that's evil, not, not comfortable with that. Um, I, would, I would hope that the opponents that would look at my perspective would be careful in that same respect. I, I, I don't necessarily want to offend anyone, but I really don't want to offend God. <laughs> so I just want to be super careful. The Pharisees, the reason why Jesus talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I realize I've kind of gone to DEFCON 10 and even bringing this up in this particular subject. But I think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And um, the reason why Jesus brought up the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit <laughs> is because the Pharisees were accusing him of being of the devil. And so it's like, man, let's just be super careful um, to, not, to not condemn something that God is, is doing. And from my perspective, that means that I have to be careful to make sure that I'm sure that God is the one prohibiting women from preaching today and not something else. Because I wouldn't want to resist the movement that God is making toward bringing women into that role um, by just buying a bunch of prepackaged cultural prohibitions and patri patriarchy stuff and so on and so forth. So I feel like I have some, you know, to tread carefully and think thoroughly before I can be firm. And I think I can be firm, but I really feel like I had to really understand what was going on. Think of it this way. The Bible teaches very plainly that the health of a church depends, in human terms anyway, on each member fulfilling his or her ministry. I'm thinking of uh, Ephesians 4. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, if women have been called to preach this whole time, and the church has for centuries prohibited them from functioning in their part, as Paul would talk about body parts, you know, in in Ephesians and First Corinthians, if if the church has been prohibiting women from functioning in a role that they were always supposed to function in or always after the first century or always except for Ephesus or whatever, we'll get into all that. Man, I don't, I don't want to be a part of making the bride of Christ unhealthy. And, you know, it's, it's even more important on the subject of pastoral or preaching because Paul says, leading up to what he said there in, in Ephesians 4, leading up to that, he says that in order for all members to function properly, you've got to have apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, because they're the ones that equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so it's, a, it's, it's, it's double jeopardy. <laughs> it's double important. Um, I don't want to get in the way of something God has been wanting to do, and... Uh, I've just been duped into buying a bunch of kind of bad theology, bad hermeneutics that is uh, accidentally, in my case, because I would, I would have literally no reason not to, uh, uh, I, w I wouldn't want to be duped. And secondly, gosh, are we, we need to make sure that this prohibition against women preaching is unlimited and that it still is in effect because otherwise we are we are ourselves weakening the church. So 
those are some a couple of reasons why we need to be careful and thoughtful and why I've gone through the trouble of making sure that I'm my conscience is persuaded that I'm holding the proper position. There's a third reason there's a third reason uh, why I want to deal with this topic. It appears that there is going to be and uh, this is already underway of movement to sort of reestablish the to reestablish the center of evangelicalism. Um, this is not something that was, this was a vibe I was getting, but it wasn't something that was on my radar clearly until I read Aaron Wren's newsletter article from July 17th called, uh, the headline of that article is Big Eva uh, says, out with fundamentalism and in with anti-complementarianism. And he's referencing something that Tim Keller wrote which was a strategic plan that he had been working on for the future of evangelicalism that included sort of outreach toward those denominations which allow women to preach. So he, he Keller had this strategic vision for the future of evangelicalism to grow in, uh, to grow in influence by pivoting away from the fundamentalists who, and I'm going to talk about fundamentalism in the coming weeks, uh, to pivot away from the angry fundamentalists and pivot toward sort of the conservative Methodists. And so this was a, a, a strategy that Keller not only was working on, but believed to be quite important. He was doing this as he was dying of terminal uh, cancer. And not only is he, not only was he working on that, um, but he was grabbing sort of tacticians to begin to enact this particular movement. Wren, in his article, says of Keller, he wants to eliminate complementarianism as a movement boundary and replace it with anti-fundamentalism. So one of the things going on kind of now in sort of the reformed world is that we would have complementarity as a boundary. We'd be like, well, we love our brothers and sisters like Craig Keener, you know, uh, Free Methodist. We love, we love those who are egalitarian, who, who take a limited view of Paul's prohibition. We love those guys, but we're not, we're not on the same sort of functional, everyday tactical team. Um, we wouldn't do conferences together necessarily, although I, I'd hang out with Craig. I would learn a million things from Craig. Um, anyway, that has traditionally been a movement boundary. And what Keller's suggesting uh, before he dies is that we, we change that. We, that, that no longer is the boundary. And, uh, and instead we start actively kind of excluding fundamentalists from, from our midst. And I believe I see this happening within sort of the prominent reformed denominations to some respect or another even now. So it would be very important for us to really double up and make sure we understand what Paul's doing in 1 Timothy 2.12 to see whether or not it should be a movement boundary, to see whether or not those of us who are going to kind of hold to that as a here I stand, I can go no further kind of thing, is that really a hill worth dying on, and so on and so forth. So there's, a, there's, there's multiple reasons why it makes sense to really pay attention to this. Now, let's go ahead and, and start talking about the um, the limited prohibition and trying to understand that argument once again would just be that something that was true for that church that 
allowed Paul to make that prohibition or required Paul to make that prohibition is no longer true. So there's different kinds of, 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 of limited prohibition arguments. And one of them would be cultural. Um, this one I think is not very good, but I'm going to give it to you. Essentially what you'd have here is that there was sort of a cultural prohibition just because the culture wasn't ready for women to teach. And, um, that, you know, we had, we have to, we had to, Paul was making a prohibition out of expediency because the culture simply wasn't ready to allow, ready to accept. It would have been a bridge too far to have women begin preaching. This is the one that I think is the weakest of all the limited arguments because I just, as I've told you before, I just think that Christians were at the time in the first century pretty revolutionary and that their practices were pretty disruptive to, to, to much of life. Just in the Ephesus church, which is where we think that you know, Timothy is uh, bishoping, uh, just in that church, we have a number of occasions in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19 in particular, that show like a, a, the church was a profoundly disruptive force. Uh, initially, Paul goes into the synagogue. He starts speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading. I'm reading from Acts 19.8. Reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning, hall, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So, you know, this there's, there's really doesn't seem to be a lot of cultural carefulness going on here. It really seems to be far more disruptive and revolutionary, which I think is really what Christianity was. And I think that explains the persecution you see coming from both of the sort of prevalent world orders, the Jewish one and the Hellenistic one. Here's another example that's better. Right in the next section of Acts 19, you've got that famous story of the sons of Sceva. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> These are Jewish exorcists, and they attempt to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. And this is a text you've probably heard of before. This is where the demon says, uh, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who the heck are you? You know. And then it says, the spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, all seven of the boys, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And one of the things that happened as a result of of that beatdown is that the fear of God spread among the people. And many, it says in verse 18, I think, many who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of you know all the stuff that they had burned and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, so that, And then the, the text ends in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, first of all, can you imagine a bunch of Christians burning books today? In, you know, I, I'm sure that that happened somewhere in the South or something. Um, but <laughs> can you imagine how the media would cover that? Well, I don't think it's any different back then. I think this was just an extremely um, no cares to give kind of vibe. This is a very disruptive, revolutionary vibe. Um, and 
not only that, but it was actively undermining the economy. We see later that the silversmiths are so threatened by this shift away from idols that they are nearly fomenting a riot. You know, the value of those books, it says in in the text, it says 50,000 pieces of silver. And we aren't told what kind of silver, well, you know, what kind of, uh, was it denarius, was it a drachma, so on and so forth. Maybe it was Bitcoin. And so um, we don't know how much it was worth. We know it was millions of dollars, though. It could have been a, a lot of millions, and it could have been several millions, but it was millions of dollars. Here's what I'm getting at. I think we can rule out pragmatism as the primary driver of Paul's prohibition against women teaching in 2 Timothy 2.12, or 1 Timothy 2.12. I think we can rule out some like argument that, well, the people just weren't ready for that yet. Yeah, the Christians seem to not care too much how much, what the people were ready for. Uh, there's a, they, were, they were kind of a juggernaut in many respects, kind of a bowling ball. So I don't think that's a good argument. Um, I don't think it's a good argument to say that the reason why Paul was prohibiting women was because Ephesus just wasn't ready for that yet. I, I don't see F, I don't see Paul uh, caring too much about what Ephesus is ready for. <laughs> I, I don't think that one makes sense. Here's the next one that I think makes a little more sense, and I think it's also supported by someone that I generally respect, and so that would be the education argument. This would still fit under the uh, res- the the restricted prohibition that this res- this prohibition against women preaching is limited in some way. And I've said I don't think the culture thing is the way to go there. Um, what about this argument that there were no women in that church who were suitably educated to occupy this role? Uh, as I said, Gordon Fee would be one of those who would assert this in his Erdman's commentary. Um, I, I like Gordon Fee's commentaries. Um, he's about kind of my lane, uh, intellectually speaking. <laughs> so I, I read him, him fairly often, and uh, I, I appreciate him in many respects. Um, he says here, he says here, I, I just had a thought, and I'm hesitant to, to bring it up because I'm just not super confident. I'll bring it up in a way that expresses my lack of confidence here in a minute. Okay, this is what Gordon Fee says. Um, The directives to women in verses 9 through 15 fit the cultural norms of the first century AD, but modern readers should not dismiss this teaching as culturally irrelevant today because women at that time typically lacked a formal or religious education. The apostle prohibits their exercise of authority over men and in matters of church and faith. And then he makes a note because he knows that there's someone's going to ask the question. I've heard people do this. What about 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, where Paul prohibits women from preach from teaching, from speaking in church? And Fee says that was a different deal. This is his footnote. Uh, that passage is directed to women whose talkativeness during church service detracts from reverent worship. So apparently that verse is talking about my wife and my daughters. <laughs> I love those. I love those ladies to death. All right. You ever see my wife like cracking jokes in the, anyway, she's just, what a wonderful woman. I'm lucky to have her. Okay. So, um, the, the thought I had as, as I was thinking about this is so Gordon Fee sees this, 
he sees like this limitation imposed on Ephesus in particular, or maybe for the particular time uh, of church history, because there just weren't enough educated women around. And the thought I had that I don't have 100% confidence is I believe that Gordon Fee is a continuationist. And I'm not going to explain any of this because it just doesn't matter. But for the few of you that might be interested, I believe he's a continuationist, which means he sees he sees an area that a lot of other people, cessationists, view as culturally limited, as being unlimited in here. Anyway, okay. So what about this idea that this prohibition against women teaching was limited because limited to that period of time because when, there just weren't any educated women. Now, you know, I did explain that to you during the sermon, that, that that's kind of true. Uh, people were People were kept from, women were kept from, theological education in many respects. That's why you can't sleep on verse 11 as a positive when Paul says, let a woman learn, because that's a big deal. That's, that's not, that wasn't the norm. Um, so what about this argument? Is it possible that Paul was prohibiting women at that particular time from, from preaching because they weren't yet educated? Well, let's think about that one. I like it better than the cultural one. So uh, I do see a few problems, though. First of all, <laughs> we have to remember in Acts 4 that one of the distinct features of the initial apostles was their lack of education. So uh, this, this is, I think, somewhat relevant. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that's the religious authorities intervening in the preaching of the gospel in Acts 4, when they saw the boldness in of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Okay, so apparently a lack of education did not exclude Peter and John from serving as apostles. Now, I want to be clear, Peter and John would have had more religious education in their childhood than a young girl. But again, if education is what Fee presents it to be, it's not it's definitely not reflected there in acts 4 and that i think that's i think that our objection of mine is not a super strong one but i think it i think it should be inserted in as kind of secondary evidence uh definitely not enough to convict definitely not enough to throw fee's case out i think one of the things that is important to understand though is that we never see paul proposing a plan to fix the problem that Fee asserts lies behind the prohibition. We never see a clear prescription for the problem that women are not being properly theologically educated. And that would be odd to me if that was the issue that was keeping women from preaching because they needed teachers, they needed elders, they needed leaders. And so uh, it just seems to me that if, if a lack of education was the reason for this restriction, it just doesn't make sense, in my opinion, for Paul not to have at some point offered specific instructions on how the church should get women up to speed so that they could come alongside the men and share in this ministry. We just don't see that. In fact, the next letter that Paul writes, 2 Timothy chapter. 2 verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, 
You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust to faithful men. Here is Paul's plan, his leadership pipeline, his plan for leadership development. He's speaking of it explicitly here. Uh, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will then in turn be able to teach others also. So he is explicitly dealing with Christian education for the purpose of getting men up to speed to teach, getting people up to speed to teach. And he doubles down on masculinity here. So if the cultural thing isn't right, which I don't think it is, I don't see the education objection working. Uh, when when someone here's 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 another, uh, I think the most convincing evidence, and, and this is the evidence that keeps a lot of people who would be inclined to depart from complementarianism. This is what keeps them here. There are people who have sensibilities that would really lean far away, so far away from patriarchal thought that they would really like it if the Bible would let them have women preachers. And, uh, and, and yet there, there are some who remain convinced, including Kathy Keller, um, who her, and Aaron Rind did a wonderful podcast on the story of Kathy Keller, which is kind of a sleeper story in this whole question of complementarity, but she was planning on being a pastor and then became persuaded that the text did not allow her to be so, be a pastor. So she wasn't persuaded by, even though she had a lot of reasons to be persuaded, she was not persuaded by the cultural argument or so on and so forth. This next argument is sort of why so many people say, stay stuck on the un, on the unlimited perspective, the one that I'm prescribing that this command from Paul never expired. And that is, is that if Paul is making a prohibition that is limited to a certain time, a certain place, a certain culture, a certain number of people, then first of all, we never see Paul give us any indication that that, that is now, it is going to be lifted we never see any offering of a solution to the problem of the lack of education, for instance. But what I think is most important is that Paul is in, the argument would be that Paul is talking about specific women in verse 12, but listen to his support for his reason. Listen to, listen to how, he, uh, how he backs up his thinking. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the the idea here would be that in the limited perspective, Paul is talking about some women in verse 12. I don't permit some women to preach, women of this age, women of this city, women who lack education. Those are the kinds of arguments you're going to get. So he's talking about some women in verse 12. Why does Paul then immediately go to all women in verse 13 and provide what is referred to as a creational argument? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, you don't appeal to Eve if you're trying to make an explicit case about some women, right? I don't think that I don't think you, you do that in this particular case. 
It says, but Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So th- that's why I don't, I don't believe that the limited arguments work. Um, and I, I want to I be sober and not flippant about coming to that conclusion for the reasons that I stated above. This is a big deal. If we're holding people out of their God-given ministry, pfft, no, thank you. I don't want to be that guy in the eyes of God. So I, I want to be sure that this is indeed an unlimited position and not a limited position. And I, I am convinced that that's the case. You got to remember when thinking about the limited position, you got to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, there were no chapters. So uh, <laughs> Timothy didn't get Timothy didn't get a, a chapter two, a chapter three, and so on and so forth. So let me read, what, seven, eight, nine, ten verses, just about? Let me just read ten verses to you. This is starting in verse 12 of chapter two. And I'm not, I'm not inserting any additional content. I'm not cutting anything out. This is literally how it would read, pure off of the, the page was handed to Timothy. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. It's really rough. It's really a stretch for me to imagine a scenario that flows appropriately in which Paul is giving a limited restriction to certain women in verse 12, proceeds to talk about all women and all men through Adam and Eve in verses 13 and 15, and then immediately pivots into the qualifications for who should exercise authority, overseers, elders, pastors, whatever, and uses not only male pronouns repeatedly, but brings up specifically male roles or, or, or male things in this. See, this is another piece of this. If, if God wanted women to be pastors, where's the list of qualifications for women pastors? I know that sounds really caveman-y of me because I'm supposed to assume that men and women are so similar that the list for one would be good enough for the other. But that's just not true. That's not true. In order to believe 
this argument that women should be pastors and that this was an originally a limited prohibition based on whatever explanation you offer. Among all the other things you have to believe is that um, God wanted us to have female elders, but did not leave us a list of qualifications that we could use in the same way that we use 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, to evaluate men who are candidates for pastoral ministry. You say, well, it's the same list. It's the same character. No, come on now. You never see that in Scripture. You, you never see, well, you never isn't the right word. Sorry, I'm new to this polemic thing. I'm, <laughs> I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to be inaccurate, um, but I just that really does not seem to work to me. There are things in that list that I just read qualifications in addition to all the male pronouns um, that just seem like explicit, explicitly male sort of concerns. And I think that there would be if women were to be. Elders, there would be explicitly female qualifications as well. Would there be a lot of overlap? Of course. But anyway, all right. So that's why I don't hold the uh, restricted position. There's still one question left. Uh, I'm sorry, that's why I don't hold the limited restrictive position. That's why I'm calling it essentially that uh, I think that that restriction in verse 12 continues. There's one more question that I need to answer, and it got it, it was it was dealt with initially when I brought up Aaron Wren and Tim Keller. And here's the question: How should we relate to those who hold the limited restrictive position? How should we relate to those who hold an egalitarian position? Well, <clears throat> is there a boundary there? Is there not? So on and so forth. How do we interact with Christians who disagree with us on this point? Well, first of all, definitely act charitably, but also act, I think we should act fairly decisively. And here's here's what I would like to say as carefully and kindly as possible. This idea that there was a limited prescription, a limited prohibition, it's just not a very respectable idea. Meaning it doesn't carry equal weight as an argument. It doesn't carry equal scriptural support. It doesn't carry equal logical support. And I think it's important to know that. I think it's important to say that. Because what that means is is that those who hold to that position really are stretching the scriptures in significant ways. And the Bible is not silent as to why someone would want to do that. But I'm not going to get into that right now. As I studied this issue, um, I kept thinking about the story in 1 Kings. The story where um, two women approach Solomon with a really difficult and, to be honest, gruesome problem. Let me pull that text up real quick. Open my Bible software here. This will only take one second. Almost there.
Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, and only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son that is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my sword. My son is the living one. And the king said, bring me my sword. And so a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means put him to death. And the other said, He shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So, there are plenty of texts that have legitimate ambiguity. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2 would be one of those verses. Like, what is childbearing? What is salvation? There are plenty of texts that have legitimate ambiguity. Verse 12 just isn't one of those texts. And to find some way around what it plainly states requires highly contorted exegesis. You know, it makes Paul out to be a relatively incompetent communicator. And I think it sort of leaves the Holy Spirit, positions the Holy Spirit as being sort of a, uh, a sloppy inspirer. There's a lot left out there that you would expect, if not in that text, in some other text. A lot going on there that just doesn't seem to line up. So I'm not suggesting that women and their allies who want to preach are um, as dark as the woman with the dead baby. But what I am suggesting is, is that in their press to be given the right to preach, the object they are fighting for, the Bible, presumably, suffers a great deal of violence in their pressing. It's, it's sort of like, even if you win, the Bible you wind up with has been cut in half. So for me, I want to be charitable with those who disagree with me, but I also, also want to be very clear, this would not be one of those areas where I could extend a great deal of respect for this other position. 
to me, if that position is the right position, the Bible is a very different thing than I understood it to be. To me, a woman who gains the right, who fights for the right to preach, winds up with a Bible that is significantly reduced and compromised. So I, I don't feel any uh, anger toward people uh, assuming their motives are, are reasonably, obviously good, sincere, um, not just explicitly covetous and dark and angry and so forth. But at the same time, I don't think that this, I do think this is a test of fellowship to some degree. Not because of the issue itself, so much as the exegesis at work to make this issue fit this other interpretation. So that's where I'm at with that. To me, I do think it's a bit of a test of fellowship. Not in any kind of sense of like, I think of it this way. If I was in, in, in Africa, um, traveling somewhere and um, I came across a, a couple that were both pastors, would I have dinner with them? Would I fellowship with them? Would I enjoy their company? Yeah, you better bet I would. <laughs> if they, if I was living in Africa and they came, would you know? Would uh, would would they be welcome to stay in my home? Would I feed them? So, hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. Uh, all other things being equal. Uh, so I don't mean any, uh, I don't mean any enmity in that respect, but I do think there's an exegetical enmity. We just have extremely different approaches to the Word of God. Okay, while I've got that sec, that that Solomon story in your head, I want to circle back to something that I've hinted at a number of times in my sermons, and clarify. I want to explain to you why I hate feminism. And do not plan on changing my mind. Um, on that particular issue. One of the things to understand about that story is, is that the women, the woman with the dead baby, before she appears in our story, has been a legitimate victim of what I think you could call inequity. For whatever reason, by God's providence, she was singled out to bear an unbelievably heavy burden. You've got two women who are prostitutes. Um, they're both sleeping with their babies. One of them happens to roll over and kill their baby. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible mistake. And in many respects, it could happen to anybody. I don't think her actions are singled out as being wrong at that point. I think she's actually, in some respects, a legitimate victim, if you will, she was dealt a bad hand. That moment of life where you realize you were dealt a bad hand I'm convinced that that feeling of inequity somebody else has an easier time maintaining a healthy weight somebody else has a, an easier time because they, um, their parents had money and yours didn't. Someone who has an easier time regulating their emotions. Someone has an easier time relaxing and not feeling anxious. And these are sort of hands you're just dealt. 
and it's not really clear that there was much you had to do, <laughs> you had to do with it. Friends, I'm convinced that that feeling is the petri dish for some of the most deadly spiritual diseases a person can have. A lot of darkness comes out of people in that moment if they do not run run to the throne of God, chain themselves to it, and say, don't let me go. Don't let me go anywhere else but here. I will complain to you. I will cry to you. I will fuss at you. I will try to trust you. Don't let me go anywhere else from here. I, I dare not flee your presence in this moment of feeling utterly singled out, mistreated, deceived, whatever. That moment where you're the victim of inequity is like the petri dish for a lot of darkness, bitterness, so forth. And it, it really it, it really springs into violence rather quickly, as we see with this story and also with the story of Cain. It here's another way of saying it. It makes monsters out of people. Or it releases the inner monster out of people. So why what does that have to do with feminism? Friends, I'm convinced that, sorry, back up. This woman could have handcuffed herself to the throne of God and been like, I'm not, I'm not happy with my fate. I'm not happy with the hand I've dealt, been dealt. I'm not going to fix it myself. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. I trust in the name of the Lord. Some trust in baby stealing. I trust in the name of the Lord. Some trust in baby splitting. I trust in the name of the Lord. She could have done that. She didn't. She became a homicidal lunatic instead. I'm convinced that that is the story of feminism. Feminism can only exist because inequity does exist to some degree or has existed to some degree. We would argue about how much inequity, so on and so forth. But for this particular argument, I just want to grant the assumption that there's just massive inequity. Women got, let's, I'm just going to, for the sake of this conversation, grant that women were dealt a terribly bad hand. It was just unfair. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm convinced that there is no period of formal feminism that is not marked by the exact same darkness that we see in this woman who was happy to have the baby split in half. That's where her rage took her took her to a point of not only kidnapping, deception, but homicidal envy. And that's what I think feminism is. I don't think that if we're talking about first, second, third wave feminism, I don't think we're talking about a, a moment in the period, in, the, in that movement that was not inexorably stained with homicidal envy, the kind that we see in this story. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying women have always had the life that God wanted for them to have. I'm not saying they were always treated justly. I'm not saying that the cards were always dealt evenly. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is, is that most of us will have at least some experiences in our lives where we, are, we get the short end of the stick and it appears to simply be God's choice. God allows someone to persecute us. God allows someone to deceive us. God allows someone to steal from us. God allows someone else to rise while we fall, whatever. And there's a particular version of that story that ends with you being the crazy woman 
calling for the sword to be dropped on the baby. And I think that's what feminism is. I, I, I don't argue, I'm not trying to argue for the case that, that there is inequity and that that inequity be, should, should be resolved. What I'm arguing is, is that there, most people can't handle that inequity without becoming crazy canes. And that that's what feminism is. It's, it's the spirit of Cain unleashed on our society in many respects. And it won't be happy to have, um, it won't be happy until the baby's dead. The future's dead. You have to remember that in that story, the woman who, who has the dead baby, like babies are savings accounts, they're retirement accounts, they're, they're the future, their status at that point. It really is a socioeconomic kind of thing. And for whatever reason, doesn't appear to be anything she did differently. God allowed her to have a dead baby and allowed the other prostitute to have a live one. She just couldn't handle the inequity, the unfairness of it. And instead of entrusting herself to him who judges justly, First Peter chapter 2, she went with her own plan. So that's why I'm pro, I'm, 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 I'm anti-feminism. As I have said before, I think feminism should be aborted. Um, that's why. I, I don't see any part of it that wasn't always substantially influenced by the same spirit we see in this crazy woman in 1 Kings chapter 3. Well, on that cheerful note, friends, I've already taken too much of your time. Thanks for walking with me through, in, uh, in principle, uh, a, a somewhat careful examination of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, and the prohibition against women preaching. Um, there's still more of that text we, we could look at, but I did want to make sure we dealt with that in more detail for the reasons I uh, already mentioned. And do look in the show notes for that, uh, that longer video from James White where he walks you through the Greek if you would like to learn more. God bless. Have a wonderful week. Love you. Bye.